0: I think I counted all the years between my husband's and my son. I have 65
1: years relationship experience with neurodiverse people. So what do we tell them? What do you tell people if they're trying to find someone for an autism evaluation or just therapy coaching? What are some of the questions you would encourage people to ask? Ideally, you're going to get
0: your partner oriented and interested in their neuro profile and if they're not i'll just say right up front coaching or counseling is not going to work
1: if someone wants to learn and grow I think we can work with that
0: toxicity is a lifelong commitment to dysfunction there's so much anger fear bitterness just feeling violated having been victimized and until you get past that victim mentality you pretty much don't want to take responsibility for anything. You are truly the only person that you will live the rest of your life with. That's what people should be coming to coaching to get They're best selled mm-hmm. versus my best marriage. Because I always tell people, look, the marriage is a house that's built of building components, meaning you and your spouse. And if you guys are warped, termite infested, moldy, rotten wood, the house is going to be what it's made of.
1: This is season three of the Your Neurodiverse Relationship podcast, which is for adults in all kinds of neurodiverse relationships, not just romantic partnerships. I'm your host, Jody Carlton, and I've spent close to two decades growing in my understanding of how our different brains influence the way we understand and relate to each other. Through the years, I've helped several thousand people understand themselves and their loved ones. This podcast is a place where I come together with others to talk about their journeys. I've got a great lineup of guests talking about things like masking, traits of neurodivergent folks, traits of neurotypical folks, what kind of things cause difficulties in our neurodiverse relationships, but also some of the wonderful things about our neurodiverse relationships. Also, this season is a video cast where you can enjoy watching on YouTube, or you can listen to us on the podcast like you have before. If you're really enjoying this podcast and if you've gotten something out of it, please leave us a review because reviews really matter and we wanna get this out there to as many people as possible so they can benefit from it just like you. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe so you'll get notifications of upcoming podcasts and other videos that I post there as well. Welcome, what will we talk about today? Hi, Barbara. I'm so glad to have you here today. And could you just maybe start with introducing yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Thanks, Jody. It's so exciting to be here with you. Love talking with you.
0: So I am a neurodiverse couples coach, individual coach. I work with people who are on the spectrum, high functioning, as well as ADHD or any other neurodiverse condition. Mm -hmm. And I have been Coaching for several years. I do everything by Zoom. I'm based on the West Coast, but I have clients internationally. I really seek to help individuals figure out what their goals are relationally and even individually in their lives. My agenda is to be their agenda. Their motivation that they bring with their own goals is what gets them to the next place that they're trying to grow to. Background wise, I'm Almost done with my marriage and family therapy masters. By the time this is out, I'll probably be done with it. I've got certifications in autism, neurodiverse couples coaching from several different organizations. It's all on my website. And uh, I tell people I have a PhD from the School of Hard Knocks because <laughs> I've had not one, but two long term neurodiverse marriages. And currently, still in my second marriage. Plus, I have an adult son neurodiverse. I think I counted all the years between my husband's and my son. I have 65 years of intimate relationship experience with neurodiverse people, just those guys. There was neurodiversity in my family of origin. And I always, I don't know what it was. I'm a little geeky for a a girl. I ran the stage crew and I always thought I was a Trekkie as a kid and I've just always loved sci-fi. So I just speak the language of many neurodiverse people Mm -hmm. and find them just unique and wonderful as are non-neurodiverse I just like pretty much everybody. I bring that ability to understand that unique individual and being interested in their uniqueness to the work I do. Again,
1: it's based on what they want to grow and learn. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that about me the techie geeky girl and that you've been in the two marriages because it's interesting how we definitely have a type there's a reason why we have a type there's a reason why we choose who we choose and you talked about even having neurodiversity in your family I think that's so much part of it it's the language we learn to speak with the people in our lives and I know for me I've definitely discovered more and more over time Just how much neurodiversity is in my family. In the beginning, my daughter was the first identified when she was five, she's 20 now. And we knew my son had sensory processing and auditory processing and all this stuff. It's really been, like you said, the PhD, the School of Hard Knocks. I totally relate to that because over time, we've realized more and more. I realized that my grandmother and my mom, even at one point in the last year, was finally like, I think. I've got some neurodiversity too. And there was just these light bulbs going off of, oh, uh, well, that's what but that is. And, but there are other family members. And I always went for the IT guys. They were in that techie base. That's always been who I was attracted to. There was a, a cliche, you marry your father or whatever, but it, it's really, it's what you're used to, that language you're used to speaking in that world yeah. that you grow up in. Yeah. When it doesn't seem
0: odd. they like, The off-putting to somebody you never see was familiar, which Mm -hmm. is a word that comes from family, familiar family. And it is not abnormal to be neurodiverse. It's just familiar to you. Yes, yes. Someone would be in that vein and you learn to get on that wavelength without you realizing you're learning. that. I even had good friends growing up when I was young that were neurodiverse Mm -hmm. and your parents. And now I see it. When we look back and I think... When we start to tune into neurodiversity and all the ways it can present, it's like all of a sudden there's all these individuals that we remember. It's not a bad thing. It's like, Mm -mm. oh, that explains
1: his giftedness or her specialty or why she was so wonderful in that way. So there's the wonderful things. I've had the same thing with friendships and cousins in my life and just different people that I'm like, oh, okay. But yeah, you're right. It's not about what was wrong. I don't really remember focusing on what was wrong. It was just, oh, okay, this is different. Or I'm different from you. You do things differently. But now, now there's that framework more of understanding, oh, that's what that was. That's what that is. And I think probably maybe like you,
0: I was already learning to navigate some of those differences Mm -hmm. and how to build Relational workarounds or communication workarounds to keep the relationship going yeah. long term experiences with how to navigate, and without realizing it, I was training to be a neurodiverse coach or support person because that's what my life experience was, so it's always so interesting to me how people get to this field. My observation to so far is. Almost everyone in this field has had some personal experience with neurodiversity because, as I said, I'm almost done with my master's in marriage and family therapy at an acclaimed university in the United States. And not one word in any of the curriculum has been spoken about neurodiversity of any kind in family relationships and how that affects
1: things. Not a word. You said that to me the first time you and I met. We were talking about that, and it still is so frustrating. I have been recently reaching out to some of the universities around here and just throwing out the idea of maybe teaching a course or a seminar. And I'm seeing, like you said, there's just nothing in their curriculum. I don't understand all the politics of academia,
0: not that I would ever want to, but I know that the school that I have been attending is geared towards getting students educated so they can pass a state licensing exam. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: then you have to look at what are the state licensing exams all about and do they mention neurodiversity? Of course they don't. In fact, mm-hmm. some of them written 20 years ago and maybe a little updated. So people in school are learning things that were germane 20 years ago so they can pass the licensing exam, but then they come out and of course licensing does require continuing educational units, CREs or whatever. And that's where people start getting really trained. If there's going to be an educational push, it really will be through trade associations where therapists and counselors and psychiatrists and psychologists come together to get their continuing educational units and they can go to A course or a seminar taught at one of these trade associations, that is going to be how they learn about it. But again, unless you have it in your life. I was just about to say that. You just have no context to understand how it actually works because it's so similar to so many
1: other. Dysfunctional kinds of relational trauma. It can definitely look similar. And I I think a lot of people who don't have it personally in their lives, it's not necessarily something they're going to pursue. A lot of the therapists I know may think, I don't really work with autism. And the thought is kids, it's always about kids. And of course, that's important. But so many therapists who are working with adults who have anxiety and depression and OCD they don't realize they're working with people who have sensory problems it's sensory related I can remember way back years ago when I was still in the clinical counseling world I was giving people the sensory profile way back then if they came in with anxiety disorders I was doing sensory profiles on them so I'm like let's see if this a sensory I just happened to know but the reason I happened to know was because my daughter was diagnosed with autism And that's when I dove in and was like, I'm going to learn everything I possibly can. I developed an expertise in it. And in my region here, I was that go-to therapist for years because people were like, she knows she's got a daughter. She knows about it. They weren't keeping those clients for themselves. I think that at that time I was working more with teenagers and with parents of children. My focus was on a child because I was raising a child and that was what I was learning about But I know even then, I didn't realize that some of the adults that came to me, I was recognizing the sensory issues. But the (laughs) apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I know. And we've got the research now. I was looking at some studies recently, and we know about 1 in 36 kids are diagnosed. But we also know now that 81% of neurodiverse traits are hereditary. (laughs) That
0: 1 in 36 number is lower because that Was based on data coming out of 2016 or Mm. 18. And the 2020 data that the CDC evaluates because of COVID, there's been a big delay. You and I know also that ADHD and autism are highly comorbid, meaning many people have both of them, meaning 45 to 75% of the people who are high functioning autism also have some level of manifestation of ADHD. And it's just now very apparent to me and others in our field that this whole neurodiverse thing is just all neurological. Slot people's presenting traits into boxes or silos is so ridiculous, like medieval thinking. Let's think three-dimensionally. Let's understand that there's a lot of possible. Mm-hmm. And I tell people it's not a spectrum of a linear this way or that way. It is a Mm three-dimensional access of presentation of constellation of traits. Mm -hmm. and, And there's so many different subtypes and characteristics that another thing I want to add to that, a lot of people maybe mention it or get evaluated and they're told, oh, you don't have ASD or you're not ADHD. But what they don't understand is what's called the broad autism phenotype, BAP, which is very prevalent, meaning many people who either have an autistic person in their family or are themselves genetically inclined in that neurological profile don't have the full presentation of all of the different criteria that they want to see in the DSM-5, but they don't qualify for a diagnosis by the rules that insurance will provide. But that doesn't mean they don't have challenges based on their neurology or relational confusion or communication, Mm -hmm. sensory things. I think the whole, I can't wait for the DSM-6 to come out. Not that it's going to be that much better, but I think one of the things that we as professionals can do is continue to speak to the people doing the research. I'm helping Dr. Stephanie Holmes with a research project Getting the research out there and publishing and documenting is critical to making the case for the things that you and I know very well from experience are going on. And academia is like clueless. Not to say neuroscience is, oh my gosh, neuroscience is like light years ahead of where we can apply the knowledge that they're understanding on a neurological level. And that's very good. But I think there's a big gap between the people in the field who have fallen into the field or backed into the field, like you and I, (laughs) and who they're training at school. In fact, just recently, I had a friendly Zoom with two or three other fellow classmates that are in my cohort. And I had mentioned on our Facebook page that I'm a coach and I'm not going to get licensed because licensing for me would really restrict my practice. And like I said, practice around the globe mm-hmm. And they were fascinated by how i'm doing my coaching work they said what is it that you're coaching and i explained i have a, a bit of a specialty and i explained what it is and one woman she just was like she goes barbara can i call you can we talk one offline and her daughter is married to somebody who is neurodiverse mm-hmm. and still mm-hmm. i said it this fellow classmate didn't know. And when I started talking about it, she's like, (laughs) but here she was almost finished with her master's in marriage and family in her own family, her own Mm son-in-law, and that there would be such a thing as specific help that couple needed and she didn't even know it existed.
1: That was exciting. I think what you experienced with her is just, it's such a a common thing. And and it's like you said, it's not until some kind of light bulb goes off for someone like it did for her when she talked to you, that then it's pursued by those professionals. And I know that just because the rate of neurodiversity is so high in what we've even diagnosed, that's just the diagnosed rate. And I, I say this in my podcast and my videos all the time, every therapist is working with neurodivergent clients, period. Hands down, no question to me. There's just not a knowledge or an awareness of what that looks like in adults. There's just been so much focus on little kids and little boys, even more so than girls. And female neurodivergence can look really different than even what people do think of adult autistic or adult neurodivergent. There's a stereotypical type of checklist, like you said, but females oftentimes look really different than that. I love the fact that Stephanie's doing this research and that you're on board with that. I was actually recently thinking about going back to do a PhD and I was looking at, at universities. I've got my master's in counseling. But I was looking at universities, I was like, where could I get the most bang for my buck in terms like, of accessing research they, dollars? In Australia, they're doing a lot of great research at the doctoral level. Because I, I, I actually hadn't looked at Australia yet. I'm not sure I'm quite ready to go that far for my kids. But I don't know, some days. But I was looking at some institutions around here, and it's not even mentioned on their websites. Usually you have to have a professor already on staff who's doing work in that field. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to have to really look hard.
0: Another approach you could take, I don't know if you have access to any research libraries, because I'm in school, I do. I've done so many downloads of articles that have been written over the last 10 years around neurodiversity for relationship and ADHD or autism. There's been stuff internationally written. And finding those individuals who contributed and finding out if they are on a faculty, you know, it's really word of mouth. It's not obvious. Schools don't talk about it. And good luck
1: trying to cherry pick a professor to call and ask about it. You're right. Yeah, I was actually looking at some of the studies and the the authors. And was there a university attached to this research study? I don't know if I'll pursue that or not, but it's something that I was looking into in the last six months. There's just such a need for it. So let's talk about how all of this applies. A lot of the people listening to this podcast, we definitely have therapists and psychologists and social workers who listen to the podcast. Then we have a lot of people who are trying to find help. So they're going to therapists. Let's tell people what to ask, what kind of questions to ask when they're trying to find a provider. Some people want to use their insurance, and I understand why. I understand why they need to use insurance. I'm in the same boat as you without a license. I used to be licensed, but I made it inactive a few years ago because I'm like you. I'm working with people around the world and insurance requires licensure in the state of residence of a client. But I understand why people need to be able to use their insurance because we can't lower our rates down to the insurance reimbursable rate or we will go out of business and then we're not helping anybody. So what do we tell them? What do you tell people? If they're trying to find someone for an autism evaluation or just therapy, coaching, what are some of the questions you would encourage people to ask? I love that
0: question. It's very helpful for the ones who will be listening. So I first of all would advise them to do as much of their own research online about this as they can. To read a few good books, one excellent one is The Complete Guide to Asperger's Syndrome. By Dr. Tony Atwood. But there are other really good books out there and a lot of books about ADHD, ADHD and marriage. So I would start with educating yourself if they hadn't already done that. Ideally, you're going to get your partner oriented and interested in their neuro profile. And if they're not, I'll just say right up front coaching or counseling is not going to work because. The neurodiverse person, if they're not willing to or interested or
1: curious about learning more about their... A coach or a therapist who's going to be one of the, in my opinion, better professionals to work with, is going to readily disclose that to you. Um, Well, they're going to know how important it is. Exactly. Yes. So they're going to be like, yes. (laughs) And they may not tell you, I'm married, or it's my mom, or they may not tell you who, but... They're exactly what you just said. They're going to know that it's important for you to know why this is an important specialty to me.
0: Another thing, as you were talking, that I was thinking about is, again, coming out of a marriage and family systems, family training, I've been indoctrinated. The thing I had to really push against was the idea that the couple is the client. Individuals are not the client. The couple is the client and the marriage is the client. And that actually is very counterproductive in Mm very diverse coaching. When I start with a couple, I have a roadmap to coaching. It's a track. And the phase one is they're working separately with me because Mm -hmm. they have entirely different things that they each need to learn and deal with and milestones that they have to reach Mm -hmm. so they can come together and do couples work. So I would tell a prospective somebody looking for a therapist to present the fact that they're on different pages and you can have a session or two to find out what the issues are but again the neurodiverse person if they're motivated they need to be helped to really see the extent of any mind blindness or their lack of self-regulation and strategies that they can learn to improve that that they have to own Something there's a grieving component for both people. They're grieving separate things, but they have to grieve. They have to be Mm -hmm. confirmed and supported. So it that's why most of this therapy, licensed therapists who have no neurodiverse specialty. I think it blows up because the individuals come with all of these trauma problems, individual needs, and they just start trying to how do we save the marriage? And they can't even be in the same room with each other for good reasons. For good
1: reasons. I'm so glad you brought that up because I 100% agree with you on that because there's so many different things that need to be addressed with each person individually. And in my opinion, what I tell clients, I'm pro human being. And if that means we can save a marriage, fantastic. I'm not in favor of a, a marriage dissolving. But what I tell folks is, okay, you've got this new framework. They may be six months into dating or they may be 35 years into a marriage. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, you've got this new framework that you didn't have when you first met. Your relationship is built on confusing differences in language and expectations and neurology. Now you have this framework, the only way you can really choose your partner is for you to go back and Figure out who your partner is and who you are, yeah. you know, who you are at this point, because otherwise you don't even know what you're choosing. And so we have to back it up so that you can really understand yourself, understand your partner and then choose all over again.
0: Or recommit with, with an combo. understanding of, oh, this is what I'm dealing with.
1: OK, I'm going to stop there for part one of my podcast with Barbara Grant. Be sure to tune in in two weeks for the remainder of my conversation with Barbara, where we go on to talk more about toxicity in relationships and how that impacts therapy and therapists themselves and couples who go into therapy. You're not going to want to miss that episode. Thank you so much to all of my guests of season three of the Your Nor Diverse Relationship podcast. These folks are bringing their lives to you to help all of you out there who are trying to figure out your own relationships. If you'd ever be interested in being on a podcast, just email us at gethelp at jodiecarlton.com. Also, be sure to visit me online at jodiecarlton.com to see all the resources that I have available to you. Until next time.